0: The annual holy days and festivals reveal God's plan of salvation for all mankind. Very few people on the face of the earth know that plan of salvation. We have an awesome privilege from God because we understand what God is doing here on earth. We understand His plan for all humanity. And we have been called at this time to receive the awesome gift of salvation. So let me ask you a question. Have you been saved? In a telecast that I gave years ago and titled, What Do You Mean Salvation?, I said the following. For some, that's an embarrassing question. Have you been saved? Many feel it's a question below their intelligence. But most will acknowledge that mankind desperately needs to be saved, even if it's only from its own extinction. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy stated, quote, "'Mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind.'" President Kennedy continued, "'Today every inhabitant of this planet must contemplate the day when this planet may no longer be habitable.'" Together we shall save our planet, or together we shall perish in its flames. Now, that was not quite true because we are not responsible for saving the planet. We are responsible as a humanity, as a human race, for destroying our planet. And thank God that Christ is coming back to save this planet. 47 years after President Kennedy's warning, the threat has only grown worse. And when we think about the extinction of all human and animal life on earth, the word salvation has a vital meaning to us. It should. And when we pray, Your kingdom come, we're asking God to save humanity and to save humanity from total extinction and death. And we think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We pray for others to be saved, not just for ourselves. So what do we mean by spiritual salvation? Perhaps you've heard me tell the story before, but when I was a senior in high school, my friend said, Well, Dick, uh, I was over visiting his home. He said, "Uh, Come on up to my bedroom. I want to talk to you about something. And we got up there, and he said, uh, are you saved? (laughs) And I didn't. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you were to die tonight, do you believe you'll go to heaven? And I said, yes, I think I'll go to heaven. And that ended our conversation. Of course, I didn't know the truth at that time either. I was oblivious as to what salvation was. But we have in our current Living Church News, the May-June issue, always be ready to give an answer. And if someone asked you, are you saved, what would you answer? The world is confused about salvation. As you know, Satan has deceived millions of professing Christians into thinking all you have to do is to say Jesus' name and you are saved. And they think that you are given ultimate salvation already. They say, once saved, always saved. Now, there is, of course, an appropriate application to that statement. Once you are saved, you're in God's kingdom, then you'll always be saved. But they misapply that statement. So what is salvation? When do you receive it? And how do you answer the question, have you been saved or are you saved? Let's turn to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. This is one of the most common scriptures that is used by Protestants. And yet, it isn't a Protestant Scripture, it's a Biblical Scripture. Ephesians 2, verse 8, and this is the New King James, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now the King James says, are You are, are you saved by faith. For by grace you have been saved, New King James, through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. And the Greek is poema, uh, meaning uh, from which we derive the word poem, that we are His work of art. We are His masterpiece. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So He is in the process of creating in us His perfect character, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them or that we should live in them. So have you been saved? Is this Scripture a mistranslation? Or have you been saved? Mr. Armstrong would emphasize the means by which we're saved. And grace is a gift. It is God's unmerited pardon. It is His favor. It is His mercy. But also, Mr. Armstrong emphasized the matter that faith is the gift. If it's your faith, he said, then you are earning your own salvation. So the Protestants actually have it wrong when they're saying your faith saves you. It is not your faith that saves you. It is the faith of Christ that saves you. Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 2.16. So it is the gift of God. The grace is a gift. And the faith is a gift of God. Let's turn to Psalm 51. And again, this is one of the most emotional, perhaps, uh, psalms. We think about it deeply at the Passover. And David, uh, of course, was repenting. This is called the prayer of repentance. He says in verse 10, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David is saying, look, I am a, your workmanship, just as we read here in Ephesians 2.8. Create me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And we all need to renew the gift that God has given us. We emphasize that on the day of Pentecost. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I hope you've prayed that. Of course, we told in 1 Thessalonians 5, quench not the spirit. And of course, Stephen, when he addressed the Sanhedrin, he said, you uh, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Of course, that uh, got them so angry they killed him. But uh, Stephen was correct in his allegation or his judgment of the Sanhedrin men. But notice this, verse 12 of Psalm 51, "...restore to me the joy of your salvation." And uphold me by your generous spirit. Have you experienced the joy of salvation? The title of this sermon is Are You Saved? I probably will have a sequel to this entitled The Joy of Salvation, but I noticed that when I was preparing the sermon, I had too much material and thought I would have mercy on you and cut it down to two sermons instead. So, Are You Saved is the question let's first address physical salvation. There are many life-threatening situations. Many of us have experienced it. Uh, How many of you feel that God has protected you or saved you from serious accidents or dangers or death? Let me see how many hands. So you have been saved. You've been saved from uh, death or injury or from uh, worse uh, pain and suffering. I remember one time, of course, there are many experiences that I can think of where God has protected me from death. But I remember uh, after the Feast of Tabernacles in 1970 in, uh, out in Alaska, Mr. Bill Gordon, the local elder, and I and uh, local members went goat hunting down in uh, Kenai Peninsula. And uh, Mr. Erickson, who is a licensed guide, uh, helped us climb up. We spotted the goats. But we had to climb up this mountain, and uh, we were only up about 80 feet. I think it was a very stiff cliff, a very sharp cliff. And at one point, I had good shoes on, but my toes were the only toe hold I had. was about an inch, you know, from the cliff, and I'm just holding on to some other rock. But the problem was, I could not go up or I could not go down. I was stuck. Don Erick, uh, Mr. Erickson was ahead of me and, and above me, and I kept praying my head off because I didn't want to fall 80 feet below. Uh, you know, I could have been killed or what, and, and uh, you know, when you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, I needed to be saved. I needed to be delivered from that circumstance. So Mr. Erickson said, well, Dick, he says, "There's a there's a little twig up there. If you can just reach that, then you can then put your other arm up and... So that Is little, that little twig up there? I don't know. And it was a little out of my reach, but I, I put stood on my toes, able to reach this branch. I guess it was more than a twig, uh, this branch, and able to get out of that situation. But I needed deliverance. And perhaps you've been in circumstances, physical situations like that. I've been healed from excruciating pain. I've told you the story when I was uh, had back pain because I had unwisely tried to lift my wife over a barbed wire fence in not the most functional way and uh, wrenched my back. Anyway, uh, I've learned some lessons from that. But I was in excruciating pain, and I could not. I said, well, I think I'll see if I can get out of bed and crawl to the bathroom. And I rolled out of bed onto the floor and thought, well, I'll start crawling. I could not even crawl. That was the kind of pain I was in, and managed to somehow get back in bed. And then Mr. Meredith came over and anointed me that afternoon, and I went to sleep. And three hours later, I woke up and I was able to move my body and was able to. I, I said, "Am I? Can I move? Can I? Can I?" began to sit up. I can actually sit up. And I just, you know, tentatively moved over to the side of the bed and got up and walked. And I was able to walk when three hours earlier I could not even crawl. So God healed me in a miraculous way. And I praise God for that deliverance, for that healing. We think about many other people who are heroes. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, who've saved others And, of course, parents have sacrificed their lives in saving their children. You read stories every once in a while about a little boy out in the ocean and his father goes to save him and he drowns and the boy is saved. Well, here in Romans, the fifth chapter, we find the principle of people who are willing to lay down their lives for others. Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yes, Some are willing to sacrifice their lives to save others. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. There have been many heroes. There have been war heroes. We, in Kansas City, saw a newly opened World War I memorial, uh, very extensive exhibits and videos about World War I. And you hear the stories of soldiers who have given their lives for their buddies when a hand grenade comes into the foxhole and it's too late to throw it out and one man just covers his body over the grenade and it explodes, but he's saved all the other men in that same foxhole. He gave his life to save others. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. There was an article here... <clears throat> Just uh, yesterday, a uh, Rainier hiker sacrificed himself to save his, w- his uh, wife. A hiker who lost his life on Mount Rainier lay down in the snow and used his body's warmth to protect his wife and a friend from the 70-mile-an-hour winds of a freak June blizzard, National Park officials said. When it became obvious the trio could not find their way back to base camp in white-out conditions. They dug a snow trench with their hands. Edward Bursig, age 31, lay down in the snow while his wife and friend lay on top of him. Later, when they begged him to switch places, Bursig refused, saying he was okay. Park spokesman Kevin Bacher said Thursday, in doing so, he probably saved their lives. Mariana Bursig, his wife, age 31, survived the storm, as did the couple's friend Daniel Vlad. They were all from Romania but living in Washington State. So here's a man who gave his life for his wife. And of course we know that John 15, 13 says, Greater love is no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Would you be willing to lay down your life in that way? But it says here in Romans the 6th chapter, I'm sorry, Romans the 5th chapter, that Christ gave Himself while we were yet sinners. Verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. There's a future tense, a future aspect to salvation. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Turn to Matthew, the 14th chapter, Matthew 14. Yes, people are willing to save others from life threatening situations. Christ was willing to die for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Matthew, the 14th chapter, speaking of physical salvation. Peter was certainly a bold individual, and no wonder once he was converted that he was a great leader and a great apostle in God's church. Matthew 14 and verse 22. Here the heading is Jesus walks on water. Uh, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat after he had fed the 5,000 and sent them away. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. uh, Verse 24. Now in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And when we're afraid, I think we need to understand that Scripture and realize Christ is always near. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the world. So if you're afraid, just realize that Christ is there. And He may say to you, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered Him and said, Lord, if it is You, command me to come to You on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter went, had gone down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Verse 31, "...and Jesus let him drown." No, it doesn't say that in verse 31. It says, "...and immediately Jesus stretched out His hand and caught him and said to him, "Oh you of little faith, why did you doubt?" So when you need salvation, Christ is there to intervene for you. He's there to help you. He's there to deliver you, to rescue you. He's there to save you. We'll be very thankful... In all these situations, whether it's a life-threatening situation that you've been in, to know that God has helped you and saved you and delivered you. Now, there's another section of history called salvation history. And what that means is that it's looking back into the history of the Old Testament and seeing how did God intervene for His people. We read this, of course, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, but let's turn back to Exodus the 14th chapter, Exodus 14. God saved, we estimate, that is, scholars estimate, and we think it would be probably about 3 million people because one of the census said there were 600,000 men, and so one would estimate there might have been about 3 uh, million people. Exodus the 14th chapter and verse 13, Exodus 14 and verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the eternal. Again, I want to ask you, how important does the word salvation, how important is that word to you? Does it have meaning? It certainly had meaning to the Israelites who were going to be captured by the uh, Egyptian soldiers and uh, would have been conquered and enslaved once again once they thought they were free. And yet God says, stand still through Moses and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall again see no more forever. The Eternal will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So there are times that God grants us salvation without our taking a step, without our doing anything. But is that all there was to the story? No. God told them in the next verse, verse 15, The Eternal said to Moses, Why do you cry to Me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So they had to do something. And in our process of salvation, we have to go forward as well. Notice verse 30, a summary statement of the salvation that took place. So the Eternal saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Eternal and believed the Eternal and His servant Moses. There are several other major historic events of salvation history. I won't turn there, but I'll refer you to 2 Kings 19, uh, verse 35. And that's when the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians who were besieging Jerusalem and killed how many? 185,000 Assyrians, 185,000. Now Herodotus in his history has a different story. He said it was an infestation by rats that caused their death. But nonetheless, 185,000 died. And so if you are besieged and 185,000 come against you, do you think God can save you? He did save those in Jerusalem. It's very, it's kind of humorous the way it's there in the King James. And when the people arose in the morning, they were all dead. So, but uh, the New King James uh, corrects that and says, "And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead." So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Let's turn to uh, Hebrews, the eleventh chapter. Hebrews eleven, and again we see that. We have to do something oftentimes to enhance or to cooperate with the salvation and the rescue that God is giving us. Here in uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This is the faith chapter, the faith, faithful men and women who followed God and trusted God. Another major event in salvation history is that of uh, King Jehoshaphat. Well, let's turn back there briefly. 2 Chronicles, the uh, 20th chapter. 2 Chronicles 20. Because we see in these examples that faith was required. We see in these examples that courage was required. The whole uh, story was that Moab and Ammon and the people of Mount Seir had uh, besieged Jerusalem, and uh, they knew that there was no escape, that they would be captured, and Jehoshaphat appealed to God and called a fast. And so what happened? Uh, We'll start with verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Eternal. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites, Korahites stood up to praise the Eternal God of Israel with voices loud and high. The uh, Charlotte choir was singing. Well, it wasn't the Charlotte choir, it was the Jerusalem choir uh, that sang. So they rose early, verse 20, in the morning, and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Eternal your God, and you shall be established. Believe His prophets, and you shall prosper. If you have not marked that verse, you should, because there are those who do not believe God's ministers, do not believe God's uh, prophets, and do not prosper. So this is a very important verse, a very important verse. Believe in the Eternal, your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Eternal, and who should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Eternal, for his mercy endures forever. So, how did they fight the battle against this overwhelming force of Moabites, Ammonites, and those from Mount Seir? They sent a singing group. They sent a choir out against them. Notice verse 22. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Eternal set ambushments against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. So they had discontinuity, disunity amongst them, and they began to fight one another. To utterly kill and destroy them. So Ammon and and Moab, instead of fighting against Judah, fought against Mount Seir and killed them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. It's almost humorous, but it's not humorous, but it's a way God used to have these enemies fight against one another. God brought a great salvation to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, we've seen some examples of salvation history, and where are we now? We are in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, and you probably know that by heart, for then there will be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, for your sake, my sake, and for the elect's sake around the world, those days will be shortened. There's a letter from a prisoner here and uh, talking about salvation. The world needs saving. It needs saving both physically and spiritually. This letter from a prisoner in Norton, Kansas. I've had a lot of time on my hands lately. I've been contemplating where my life is going. An article in the May, June 2007 Tomorrow's World magazine titled, You Need Salvation by Dr. Meredith struck me as very pertinent. Pertinent. What I really want to ask is about baptism. Would this be possible for me being in prison? If not, I will wait. If yes, then words could not express my sheer joy. Baptism is readily available here from the chaplains as well as local volunteer pastors. If I just wanted baptism on my record to look good, I could have it at any time. But I chose to wait for a true minister "...ordained by God, having the truth of the Bible, and being led by the Spirit of Christ. The local ministry, although well-intentioned, cannot pass on to me something they don't have. I've repented before God, and I believe He has forgiven me. I know of nothing I can say in this letter to convince you of my sincerity. I only ask you to pray about this, and God will guide you. I'm aware that this could be a real test of faith by all concerned, although this is my spiritual life at stake." This is not just about me, it is about the body of Christ. And, of course, the minister had been contacted to meet that individual. But he was moved by the article, You Need Salvation. Mr. Meredith wrote in that article, quote, Millions do not understand their need for salvation. I might just interject here. When you just look at all the partying around the world and And, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow will die kind of attitude and philosophy. They don't think they need salvation. But when they get in trouble, when they get uh, transmittal sexual diseases, uh, when they uh, get in prison, when they have other kinds of trials and problems, they might wake up and realize they need God's salvation. They need help. Mr. Meredith continues, Sadly, many who believe they are saved are not even Christian. Are you learning the truth about salvation and acting on it? You need to be sure. So many do not realize they need salvation, and yet they are slaves to sin. I was a slave to sin at one time. Were you a slave to sin at one time? Are you a slave to sin even now? I hope we don't have anyone in here. Let's turn to Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6. Because we need to be saved not only from the penalty of sin, which is death, we need to be saved from the practice of sin. Because if we are slaves to sin, we are practicing sin on a regular basis. Romans 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. We'll discuss some of that later. But when you're a slave to sin, you are practicing sin. You're living a way of transgressing God's laws and, of course, the spiritual aspect of God's laws as well. There are people who are slaves to emotional illness, There are people who are slaves to drug abuse or alcoholism or other kinds of addictions. And all these slaves need deliverance. All these slaves need God's salvation. And so if you have problems, you need to ask God to deliver you from whatever trials, frustrations, problems, or if you are a slave to sin, for deliverance from that as well. What does Christ tell us to pray? Well, let's turn there to Matthew 6 and verse 13. So this section is entitled titled uh, subsection. Ask God to deliver you. It's a part of the question, are you saved? Are you delivered? Are you rescued? Are you redeemed? Are you saved? Of course, there are many applications, both physical and spiritual. Matthew the 6th chapter. Matthew 6. Of course, this is the prayer outline that Jesus gave, Matthew 6 and verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. I pray that regularly, I don't know if you do, of course, different um, ways of saying it and permutations of that principle. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one; for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In other words, all the requests that we make in this prayer are through the power of God because he has that power to him belong the power and the glory and the kingdom forever. Let's turn to second Peter the second chapter, though we have internal Problems and challenges. And some of it, of course, is when our human nature gets the best of it, and we don't have enough spiritual power to counteract our human nature. But we pray that God will deliver us from the evil one. In Second Peter, the second chapter, and uh, starting in verse nine, Second Peter two, and verse nine. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He knows how to deliver you out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So again, uh, God says that He is able to rescue you. He's able to save you. He's able to deliver you out of an addiction, out of a slavery to sin and give you real freedom. And we'll talk about that Perhaps in the next sermon, but we have those internal challenges that uh, we have. Now let's take a look at Second Samuel twenty-two. Second Samuel twenty-two. Can God deliver you? Has He delivered you out of pain and suffering, financial problems, or other uh, persecution, or other kinds of uh, challenges? Second Samuel, the twenty-second chapter. Joshua judges Samuel. Second Samuel twenty-two and uh, verse twenty. Second Samuel twenty-two and verse twenty. David is here praying to God and expressing his love towards God. In verse twenty of Second uh, Samuel twenty-two, he says, "Speaking that the Eternal was my support." Verse twenty, he also brought me out into a broad place. Sometimes we we have uh, frustrations and challenges just seem like it's one problem one day and another problem the next, and it just seems like we don't have any peace or any broad place or a time or a place in which we can just have peace. You need to pray for that if you're frustrated, you're challenged, you're persecuted every day. He also brought me out into a broad place and delivered me because he delighted in me so god will give you that deliverance chapter 22 and verse 44 so we've seen some internal challenges we pray that god doesn't lead us into temptation but deliver, deliver us from the evil one and then uh, verse 44 of second samuel 22 you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. So there are external problems that we need deliverance from. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people and have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. And he goes on to show how God is going to prosper his leadership. And um, I won't turn there, but Psalm 86 and verse 13 uh, David says, For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, the depths of the grave. Has God delivered your soul from the depths of the grave? Let's turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. And uh, as we read at the beginning, David prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So how... Do you joy in God's salvation? Psalm 18 and verse 1. Psalm 18 and verse 1. I will love you, O eternal, my strength. The eternal is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, I will call upon the eternal who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. so ask God to deliver you, uh, David rejoiced in god 's salvation by singing to him praising God, telling God he loved him, thanking God for the deliverance that God had given him, so express your love and your affection and your praise to God you know there was I was reading uh, story the other day which touched me somewhat. We, in Kansas City, uh, we went with Mr. and Mrs. Millich to a Christian bookstore and they had about 70,000 volumes on hand, but I did find one or two books that uh, interested me at uh, reduced price. It was one that uh, I've had some of these other books, Chicken Soup for, this one is for the unsinkable soul. And this particular story is an illustration of what it's like to be in prison. Now, you can judge this woman and say, well, she deserved it, but she is being deprived of the freedoms that you and I take for granted. When God has delivered us from the myths and the superstitions and the deceptions of Satan, we have a joy and we have a freedom because, as Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But here's a woman who's in prison. It's called sensory deprivation. Editor's note. The following piece was sent to us by a female prisoner. We don't know what the crime was, but uh, by Deborah E. Hill. She says, "'I want to go dancing and wear a dress that swirls and floats around me and laugh. "'I want to feel the shimmer of silk as it glides over my arms and down my body, "'the joy of fingering its whispery softness. "'I want to sleep in my own bed and luxuriate in the cool crispness of clean sheets.' and rest my head on my own soft pillow and to go to sleep when I want to with all the lights out and wake up when I'm ready. I want to stretch out on my couch under my blue plaid afghan and listen as my favorite music seeps from the speakers and into my being watering the parched landscape of my soul. I want to sit on my porch and sip hot coffee from my stoneware mug and read the newspaper and hear the dog bark at blowing leaves and trespassing squirrels. I want to answer the phone and call my friends and family and talk until we catch up on all the words we've saved for each other and laugh. I want to hear the train hoot through Loveland, the gravel crunch in the driveway and the car door slam as friends come to visit, and the tinkle and the clink of silverware on China, the hiss and gurgle of the coffee maker. I want to feel my bare feet on the cool whiteness of my kitchen floor and the soft blueness of my bedroom carpet. I want to see the colors, all of them, every color ever spun into existence, and white, true white, pristine and unblemished, and acres of green trees, and miles of yellow ribbon highways, and yards of Christmas lights, and the moon. I want to smell bacon sizzling, a steak broiling, Thanksgiving dinner in my father's tomato vines, and fresh laundry, hot tar on a parking lot, and the ocean. But more than all of this, I want to stand in the doorway of my son's room and watch him sleep and hear him get up in the morning and see him come home at night and touch his face and comb my fingers through his hair and ride in his truck and eat his grilled cheese sandwiches and watch him grow and laugh and play and eat and drive and live, mostly, mostly live, and put my arms around him and hold him until he laughs and says, Mom, that's enough, and then be free to do it again. That's the very colorful and descriptive desire of this woman to be free. She's not free. And because of whatever crime she committed, she is unable to have the freedoms that we take for granted. We have to ask God for deliverance from our pain, our suffering, our slavery to sin, and God will give us that salvation. So just what is salvation? Mr. Armstrong wrote in The Mystery of the Ages, page 125, "...much supposed Christian teaching has been that God created the first man, a perfect, immortal being, and that when God was not looking, Satan stole in and wrecked this wonderful handiwork of God. Salvation is then pictured as God's effort to repair the damage and to restore mankind back to a condition as good as when God first created him. In doctrine after doctrine... They have believed and taught the diametric opposite of the truths plainly revealed in the Bible. They're following Satan's first lie, which is that man has an immortal soul. The world doesn't know the truth about salvation. You know the truth about salvation. You know you need to be saved from the penalty of death. As it says in Romans 6.23, "...the wages of sin is death." But the gift of God is immortal soul, soul, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's turn to Psalm um, 21, Psalm 21. So I want to ask you at this point in time, are you enjoying your salvation? Well, you probably don't think of your Christian walk as salvation to be enjoyed, and yet, Where he read in Psalm 51.12, David prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 21 and verse 1. David writes or sings, The king shall have joy in your strength, and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. Let's turn to Psalm 35 and verse 9. There are many such expressions, and I hope you, brethren, can have that same attitude that David had and be able to express to God your appreciation of His relationship in your life and his, of His deliverance and His salvation. Psalm 50, 35 and verse 9, "...and my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in His salvation." So salvation is deliverance from sin, deliverance from the penalty of sin, and it's something in which we should joy. Uh, the New King James Study Bible, which I have here as is, is a section on salvation, page 1768. The Greek word for salvation used by Paul literally means deliverance or preservation. In a spiritual context, the idea is rescue from the power and dominion of sin. And, of course, we would add rescue from the penalty of sin. But God has given us good news. It's called the gospel. And some have seemed to have a problem with the gospel of salvation or the gospel of Christ or the gospel of grace. But those are biblical truths, and I hope none of us has that problem. I hope we can rejoice in Romans, the first chapter, as the Apostle Paul did. When he spoke about the gospel of salvation, actually he refers to it here as the gospel of Christ, which we know, of course, the message that Christ brought was the gospel of the kingdom of God, but it's described in many different ways. Romans 1, verse 16, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." Can you say that? I hope all of us can say that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. "...for it is the power of God to salvation." For everyone who believes, the gospel is powerful because it's truth. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. So we see then that there is a gospel that has a power of God to salvation. Let's turn to Ephesians, the first chapter, Ephesians 1. And again, I hope that you all rejoice in however God describes the good news, whether it's the good news of Christ, it's the good news of grace. Ephesians one and verse thirteen. Ephesians one and verse thirteen. In him, meaning Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which we just recognized last week on Pentecost. Who is the guarantee, or which is, should read, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So let's understand, brethren, the true gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of God, and that is the gospel of salvation as we just read in Romans one sixteen and here in Ephesians 1.13. And uh, as Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. The gospel can be described in different ways. In God's Word, the Bible describes the good news, and I'll just give you these references, the gospel as the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, verse 24. Now, I hope everyone in here can identify with that phrase, the gospel of the grace of God. The good news that God is giving you favor. The good news that God is giving you unmerited pardon. And He gives you, if God gives us favor. And I pray, of course, often, and Mr. Armstrong did in a different way when he would go to radio stations to get the World Tomorrow broadcast, he would go to a program manager at a radio local radio station. and Before he did, he would pray that God would give him grace and favor in the sight of this uh, program manager so that he could get the World Tomorrow Radio program on. And uh, I try to encourage those who are working in the world, our members who sometimes are resistant to their superior, their uh, managers, uh, rather than being uh, cooperative, to pray for grace and favor in the sight of their superiors, their managers, their supervisors. And, of course, to respond lovingly and cooperatingly and uh, responsibly. So I hope responsibly and to respond quickly and uh, immediately as they can. Of course, he says to children, obey your parents and the Lord. They remember in Ephesians 6. So the gospel of the grace of God is Acts 20, verse 24. The gospel of the glory of Christ is Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. Again, think about that. The good news of the glory of Christ. Remember, he prayed, Father, restore to me the glory which I had before the world was. And when you read Revelation 1, you see that his face shines as the sun in its glory. And we should rejoice in Christ's glory. The gospel of your salvation, which we just quoted, Ephesians one verse thirteen, and the gospel of peace, the good news of peace. How you can have peace? How we are peacemakers, as we heard in the sermonette, Ephesians six fifteen. The gospel of peace. So, brethren, are you rejoicing in the good news? Are you rejoicing in the gospel? The Greek word for salvation. By Paul, literally means deliverance or preservation. So if you are saved, what are you saved from? Romans 6.23, you are saved from the penalty of eternal death. What else are you saved from? You are saved from practicing sin. We sin, it says, John writes in 1 John 2, I write unto you that you sin not, but if you sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the key, brethren, is to not practice sin. If you are, you need to repent. You need to change your thinking. You need to change your behavior. You need to change your life. And if you're saved, ultimate salvation is becoming a glorified, immortalized spirit being born into the family of God at the resurrection. The next section is really the key to answering the question, are you saved, although we've already discussed some very significant points regarding salvation. There are three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. We already saw in Romans 5, verse 10, the future tense, we shall be saved by his life. I'll quote it again, Romans 5:10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Do you know know another common Scripture that you all should be able to quote that shows that salvation is future? Matthew 24 and verse 13, which says, He that endures to the end the same shall be saved. So we have a future tense of salvation, and that ultimate salvation is being born into the kingdom of God at the resurrection. There is also a present tense of salvation. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. And again, you should, uh, if you have the, it's not in the King James Version, but it's made clear in the New King James Version. So if you have a King James version, you'll need to to put in the margin New King James. uh, The correct tense is the present progressive tense. 2 Corinthians 2 and uh, verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. They are in the process of being saved and in the process of of perishing. It's the present progressive tense, our being saved. So we're in the process of being saved. We have to mature spiritually. We grow spiritually once we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Days of Unleavened Bread taught us that we need to overcome the world, Satan, and our human nature. Salvation is an ongoing process. I won't turn there but there are two other references that give this present progressive tense of salvation. One is Acts 2:47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Not that they were already saved or they had reached the future ultimate salvation. Acts 2:47 and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 1 Corinthians 1:18 is another reference. Paul writes for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So we have the future those who endure to the end shall be saved and we have the present progressive tense that those who are being saved, um, it is the power of God, that is the message of the cross. If we were ultimately saved by death, the death of Christ, then there would be no need for us to grow spiritually. And I think you know, we've, various presenters in the past have given that uh, scenario and kind of in a humorous way. Well, if you just accept Christ, you're saved, once saved, always saved. Wouldn't it be nice if God would then just? flip you off to heaven. That, that would be the plan of salvation that I think they should have. But they don't have it. I'm sorry. And we saw, <clears throat> now, the past. Let's turn to uh, Titus 3. So we've seen there is a, a future. There is a present. And I'll take a look at the past salvation that God has given us. We've seen, obviously, uh, salvation history and God's intervention and deliverance of Israel in history and Judah. Titus, the third chapter, and uh, verse 4. Titus 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which he, we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Now, I hope that doesn't bother anyone in here, that there is a past application of salvation in your spiritual process. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of this Holy Spirit, which, should be read, He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We also saw, read earlier, Ephesians two eight: For by grace you have been saved. So what have we been saved from? We have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. When you come up out of the water in that baptism and the minister says your sins are forgiven, you have accepted the blood of Christ and the death penalty has been paid for you. You have been saved from the death penalty. You have been saved from the penalty of your past sins. And that's the key, from your past sins, not from your future sins and of course on Pentecost Peter said repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So what is this washing of generation that the Apostle Paul refers to? The Apostle Paul is referring to baptism after which God gives the repentant sinner the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to Romans 3.23 Romans 3:23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's, <laughs> oh, it's so sad when someone says, "Oh, you know, I I've I've never sinned." I think I shared with you the the uh, comic strip peanuts in which Lucy is saying uh, it's admitted that she had uh, made a mistake once in her life and and, of course, Charlie Brown said, well, when was that? She said, well, I think it was back in 1952. Was it on a Monday, or was it, when was that? I, you know, she, she admitted she'd made one mistake in her whole life. But uh, there are people like that that I know on the baptizing tour we took back in 1964, we'd meet people, and, of course, one of the questions we'd ask to see whether they were repented or not, you know, what do you think about your past life? Oh, I've been good all my life. Oh, well, goodbye. We don't need to see you. You know, uh, repentance of baptism is for those who need to be forgiven of their sins. And this one lady says, Oh, yeah, I did steal an apple one time. You know, she, she had not come to see her human nature. Why did you steal that apple? You know, God gives us the gift of repentance, the ability to see ourselves and to see our human nature. As I brought out in previous sermons, you just pray and ask God, to help you see your human nature, and you will be revolted once you really see it. Well, God grants us that ability. But notice here in Romans 3 and verse 23, "...for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness." "...because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed." You might want to underline sins that were previously committed. Or in the King James, uh, it is the remission of sins that are past. So God forgives us for all the sins that are past. He's not forgiving you in advance of the sins that you're going to uh, commit in the future. You are under grace... And that does mean that you have a repentant attitude, as I've been emphasizing in sermons uh, more recently. But what have you been saved from? You've been saved from the penalty of sin, of your own sins. You've been saved from your past sins, the remission of sins that are past. So in summary, when someone asks you, are you saved? What can you say? How would you answer that person? I would say something like, I have been saved from my past sins by the blood of Christ. I am now being saved, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and I shall be saved by Christ's life. Now, if you want a uh, more thorough explanation of it, it's in our current uh, Living Church News. on uh, Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. That's in our current Living Church. Church news. So that is a wonderful answer, and I hope that you all understand it thoroughly and would be able to give that answer if someone asked if you are saved. We are not seeking a selfish salvation. That was apparent in a former association because they didn't want to preach the true gospel to the world but to just rejoice in their own false idea of salvation. We don't have a selfish salvation if we love one another, as we heard in the sermonette. We even love our enemies, and we want them to be saved. Let's turn to James 5, verse 19. James 5, verse 19. Mr. Meredith has often emphasized that there are those groups. I think that was also in Mr. Lambert Greer's article on why we're different, that some groups don't care about getting the gospel to the world. But we, God's going to hold us responsible for that. We need to preach the gospel. Bring back the erring one as the subhead in James 5, verse 19. Do we want others to be saved from their sins? Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. God wants us to be our brother's keeper. He wants us to care for our brethren. If they're going astray, He expects us to intervene. He expects us to give them an exhortation, a loving warning. And say, John, you're drinking too much. You know, you keep that up and you're just... uh, going to be a slave to uh, alcohol, you know, whatever the case may be where you need to show your brother or sister his or her sin and you want to keep them from committing the unpardonable sin or deliver them from the slavery to sin or prevent them from being a slave to sin. This is a commentary by William Barclay on the letters of James and Peter. And he comments on James 1, and uh, verse, I'm sorry, James 5 and verse 19. And the subhead is the supreme human achievement. James 5, verse 19. James finishes his letter with one of the greatest and most uplifting thoughts in the New Testament, and yet one which occurs more than once in the Bible. He goes on to say here that it has been said that those who bring sunshine into the lives of others cannot keep it from themselves, And certainly, those who bring the lives of others to God cannot keep God out of their own. The highest honor God can give is bestowed upon him who leads another to God, for the man who does that does nothing less than share in the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of men. So, this section of Scripture, James 5, verse 19 and 20, is very, very important. And it shows that we are not seeking a selfish salvation, but we want to help others to be in the kingdom. And how do we do that? How can we help others to be in the kingdom? I already referred to uh, the May-June LCN, always be ready to give an answer. And that's 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So how do you do that? By giving an answer. The truth is powerful. He tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God, which is the Word of God, and uh, the shield of faith. But the power of truth is one of the ways that you can be a peacemaker and one that you can help turn others to righteousness and you can help others into the kingdom of God. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, 1 Timothy 4. How else can you turn others to righteousness? how else can you help others into the kingdom of god by having an answer a ready answer of truth 1st timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 let no man let no one despise your youth but be an example to the believers in word in conduct in love in spirit in faith in purity we heard that emphasized in the sermonette to be a loving example. And this is to a young man. And young men and young women uh, need to, of course, follow that example in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, Paul writes. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In other words, the truth will have an impact. You are sowing seeds. And sometimes there are children or family members who are going astray and they won't listen. But you set the record straight. You sow the seeds, and you tell them, look, here is the truth, son. Here is the truth, daughter. And they may not accept it at that point in time, but you will have sown the seeds that later on will bear fruit in their lives. I've met at the feast. i mentioned this before. It was two years ago. and uh, It was in Paducah, and I think in Clearwater. Um, no, it was Daytona. In one case... Uh, a church member came to me and said, well, this is my first feast in 40 years. In other words, that as a child, that person had gone to the feast but had gone astray for all that time. And I told those parents, parents, don't give up on your children. Because there are the others there, I think it was at Daytona, where someone said, this is my first feast in 30 years. So God is not going to give up on anyone. And you can help others into the kingdom by praying for them as faithful parents do for their children, even those children who may have gone astray for 20, 30, or 40 years. And you're faithful in your prayers for them. So how do you help others into the kingdom? By the power of example. Let no one despise your youth, Paul writes, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love. Continue in the doctrine, the power of the truth, the word, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. How do we set that example, uh, set an example to the world? By being the light of the world. Of course, in Matthew 5:14, he says, verse 16 in Matthew 5, "...let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven." So how much light are you shining and sharing with the world, your family, and with the church? We sow seeds to the kingdom by our daily example. We live the truth, we treasure the truth, and we rejoice in the truth. So we are called to do God's work. We are not seeking a selfish salvation. We are seeking to help others into the kingdom by doing God's work. As Mr. Armstrong wrote in a co-worker letter November 18, 1974, And God has given us the work to do as the very means by which we may grow spiritually. So let's briefly summarize. Many believe that salvation is only a past event. You just accept Jesus as your Savior and that's it. You're supposedly once saved, always saved. But we saw from the Scriptures that salvation has a past, present, and future application. In the past, we saw Titus 3 7, according to his mercy, he saved us. Present, 2 Corinthians 2.15, those who are being saved. Future, Romans 5.10, we shall be saved by His life. So if someone were to ask you the common question, are you saved? A truly converted Christian could answer, I have been justified, redeemed, or saved for my past sins. I am now being saved as I grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ And I shall ultimately be saved by Christ's life. When will we be ultimately saved? 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, and starting with verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15.50 Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible in corruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory and then in verse 57 he says but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, the ultimate salvation takes place and at the resurrection, we will be glorified spirit beings, as it says in Colossians three four. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will be a glorified, immortalized spirit being. We will no longer f- experience pain and suffering and death. So we have a lot of work to do in preparing for that great event. And in the meantime, we rejoice in God's salvation. So let's express that joy in prayers of thanksgiving, in hymns of praise, in growing spiritually, and maturing spiritually. And let's remember King David's prayer in Psalm 51, verse 12, "...restore to me the joy of your salvation." So brethren, let's always rejoice in the gift of God's salvation.